You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. L.A. got the tiniest little bit of a baby bath this week. And even if there's just the tiniest little bit of rain, everyone forgets how to drive, which they already forgot to do because of the pandemic. So between that and gas prices, I've been avoiding going pretty much anywhere more than like four miles away from my house. I didn't get into the theater this week because work was super crazy. I work for one of the the big studios and we're slowly transitioning back into the office. But I did take some time out this week to watch Coda, which is on Apple TV and is nominated for Best Picture. So since it's nominated for like Best Picture, I figured I'd make an exception this time. I would have loved to see it in the theater, but it's a streamer one. So it was in the theater for like blink and you miss it to meet the rules. Anyway, here you go. CODA, for those of you who don't know, stands for Child of Deaf Adults. CODA tells the story of a young girl who was born hearing into a deaf family and is therefore, whether she asked for it or not, responsible for how the rest of her family interacts with the hearing world. She's their interpreter. All her life, she has been in service of her family, supporting her family as the only one with a foot in the hearing world. But when a chance to do something solely for herself arises, which is to study singing in college, the inner conflict of breaking out on her own into something new and unknown or staying with her family who need her, you know, because they've never had to live without her really, kind of tears away at her. I haven't loved a movie this strongly after a singular viewing in a very long time that I didn't have like some other attachment to beforehand. The characters are incredibly well developed. The story is beautiful. Everything is so well done. You forget that you're watching a movie and not like a documentary about this family. It is seamless. Unless something changes, this is not only my favorite Best Picture nominee this year, I've still got like three or four more to see, but this film might possibly be my favorite film in the last three or four years. It's that good. Watch it now. Watch it fast. It's so, it's amazing. Okay, new month, new theme. Now for January, we lived pretty much solely in the very, very, very beginning of cinema. This month, we're not at the beginning beginning but we're still pretty close to the beginning of cinema we're going back to the silent era to meet some ladies whom would become some of the first movie stars we'll cover their early lives notable roles and what happened to them when the cinema learned to speak this week theta Berra, possibly the first sex symbol of cinema and the first fully fabricated movie star Theta blasted onto the scene, seemingly from nowhere, to become one of the biggest movie stars of the day, only to have her flame snuffed out nearly as quickly as it had begun. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Mm-hmm. 
Theodosia Burr Goodman was born July 29th, 1885, most likely. She didn't have a birth certificate and lied about her age for most of her life in Cincinnati, Ohio. In fact, other than her family, it's unlikely anyone actually knew her actual age. Her husband probably didn't even know how old she really was. If you're a Hamilton musical fan, that name might sound familiar, Theodosia. Well, Theodosia was named after the daughter of Aaron Burr, so there you go. Theodosia's father was Bernard Goodman, a Jewish man from Poland who now owned a successful tailor business. Her mother was from Switzerland. The couple would have two children after Theodosia, one of whom would also become an actress under the screen name Lori Barra. Theda described her early childhood as idyllic and normal. She also seemed to be quite a highly educated and curious woman, able to play the piano and read a book at the same time. I don't I was impressed by this. I don't know if like that's a normal thing. I can do one of those things. Anyway, in her youth, she fell in love with the theater. After graduating from high school in 1903, Theodosia attended the University of Cincinnati for two years while mostly working in local theater productions. This two years in college likely makes her one of, if not the only, early female film star to have any kind of higher education beyond high school. Finding Cincinnati not exactly the height of the entertainment world, Theodosia dyed her blonde hair black and moved to New York City in 1908, making her Broadway debut later that year in The Devil. Not a ton is definitively known of her life at this time, as Theodosia would sometimes use the stage name Theodosia to cap it, and in a pre-internet world, it's kind of hard to track people around because you gotta be in the big dusty library with the big books and look through it manually. While Theodosia would keep detailed records of her own career, everything before 1914 was lost in an apartment fire. The actress would claim she spent time in Europe during this time, doing various plays and traveling with a theater company or two, but none of this can be corroborated by any kind of records. What we do know is that Theodosia spent the next six years doing the actor thing. Auditioning, auditioning, auditioning. Get work. Do the work. Unemployment auditioning again. She was a working actress, but not a super highly praised one. Nothing was really giving her the next big thing. Now, back in those early silent film days, as the films shifted away from just the scenes of everyday life, the actualities, to the scripted world, which is more as we know it today, the early movie moguls and producers required actors who had performance experience. Easiest place to get those people? From the theater. One day, one version of the story goes, Theodosia had a meeting with Frank Powell, a new film director for William Fox, at his newly found company, you guessed it, Fox Film. Powell was immediately taken with Theodosia and cast her on the spot in his film The Stain as an extra. One of the stills I saw has her as a nun. I've heard some different conflicting things, but there you go. She was as a nun. Another version of this story is that Powell actually met her on the set of The Stain, not beforehand. Either way, the result was the same. The 29-year-old made an impact on Powell, mostly by her ability to take direction. And of course, she was easy on the eyes. So Powell convinced Fox to let Theta star in his next film, A Fool There Was. Fox didn't need that much convincing. He didn't want a named actress for the part, complaining that if you put a woman in a film, she got too big of an ego afterward and then just became unmanageable and anything else. There's some fun 1910s sexism for your day. 
A Fool There Was, which shot in New Jersey at a soundstage the studio was renting at the time, is based on a play that was based on a poem that was based on a painting and tells the story of John Schuyler, a rich lawyer, diplomat, and family man who goes to England on a diplomatic mission. En route, John meets the Vampire Woman, described as, quote, a woman of the vampire species who uses her charms to seduce men and destroy their lives. She's not actually a vampire as we know them, like fangs and drink in the blood, but rather a temptress. John soon falls under her spell. He abandons his family, loses his job, his social standing, all the perks, and becomes a drunk. All attempts by his family to save him fail, and John continues to deteriorate until his demise. Although Theodosia swore she would never play such a, quote, unvirtuous role, the part of the vampire woman would give her her big break. The word vamp rose in popularity practically overnight, and the adjective vamping would be added to the dictionary that year, and no small part due to Theodosia's performance in the film. This role would also come with a new name and backstory. While many performers of this era would change their names for one reason or another, Theda Barra's entire past would be the first to be completely reconstructed from the ground up. Well, the origin of where some parts of the name came up, most notably the last name, we most agree on where the first name came from. Theta was a nickname from childhood. Sounds like her name. Theta, Theodosia. That tracks. The source of where her last name came from is most often attributed to a Swiss grandfather, Francois Berenger de Coppet. They took the first four letters, boom, Theta Barra. Also, based on some of the backstory I'm going to get to in a second, they may have made it an anagram for Arab. We're not sure. So the backstory, 100% bullshit. The Fox publicist later claimed while promoting 1917's Cleopatra that Theta's name was an anagram for Arab death. And they also falsely promoted the young Buckeye as, quote, the daughter of an Arab sheik, one source said Italian sculptor, and a French actress who met in the Sahara, fell in love. Theta was then born in the Sahara in the shadow of the Sphinx. After her childhood in the desert, Theta Barra had gone to Paris, where she had become famous in the theater. And this is where Frank Powell met her and whisked her away from France as the troops were descending. This was World War I time after all. Theta was introduced to the press in a darkened Chicago hotel room where the Fox publicist handed reporters a sheet of paper with their fun little story on it. Theta barely said a word the entire time. In doing this, and by the way, most people knew this was all fake, but you know, whimsy, but yeah, Fox had created the first fully invented screen star. Theodosia Goodman from Cincinnati, Ohio was no more. Long reign, I guess, Sphinx Queen Theta Barra. Theta's contract with Fox also included, reportedly, some of these super fun rules, which I thought I'd share. She could not get married within three years. She had to be veiled in public. She couldn't take public transportation. She couldn't go to or be in the theater. No Turkish baths. No non-professional photos could be taken of her. She couldn't close the curtains of her limo. I guess this was before windows could be tinted. And finally, she could only go out at night. 
All of this work seemingly paid off, and A Fool There Was, Fox's fourth film, was a box office success, making Theta an instant star and in doing so giving Fox the capital to grow their little baby film studio. The film also created the vampire woman trope, a predecessor to the femme fatale of the noir genre, not a being of supernatural power, but rather one who uses her feminine wiles to control any man she wishes, sucking the essence out of them in the process. Essence, by the by, is a not-so-subtle euphemism for man sperm, which at this time was linked to their vitality. It was widely believed at this time that every time a man had sex, he got just a little bit dumber. Theta's character was the ultimate seductress, which meant really good at taking man essence, and was described in the New York Morning Telegraph as, quote, the most revolting but fascinating character that has ever appeared on the screen for some time. Another called her an instant triumph. Vita existed in a shorter period of film history before the Hayes Code could come into being and make all the sex things go away for about 30 years. Theta's characters were an example of uncontrolled, untapped female sexuality, something that was terrifying to many at this time. Theta's characters were strong, sexy, and no man could resist her. They all fell to the whims of that vamp Theta Bera. She became a manifestation of the fears of what any woman could be capable of. Unsurprising given the era which coincided with the women's suffragette movement. These films were meant to be cautionary tales. They didn't really work as such. Audiences were also drawn to Theta's eyes. She had these big, huge brown eyes, which were always adorned with like smoky black eyeliner. This look, which was based on Middle Eastern makeup trends, would keep bringing audiences back again and again. While she worked for Fox, Theta was continuously photographed with snakes, skulls, crystal balls, wearing skimpy outfits to just keep bringing home how dangerous her characters were, and by extension, she. She was described as, quote, the wickedest face in the world, dark, brooding, beautiful, and heartless. Bera immediately became Fox's biggest star and remained so for the length of her time there. At her peak, she was earning $4,000 per week, about sixty-five grand a week in today money. At the start of her career, Theta would turn out a film once every five weeks or so, most of which were these vamp films. Theta's characters weren't always driven by sexual desire as the genre grew. Nuances did emerge in the vamp characters she played. Sometimes, like in When a Woman Sins... Her character wanted intellectual as well as sexual fulfillment, but is limited by her primitive urges. This is the 1910s, remember, you could only be one thing or another if you're a woman. If betrayed, though, she would go after mankind with everything she's got, destroying men left and right in the process. While these predatory female stories, oh, the irony, were meant to serve as cautionary tales to men, because that's 100% the people in society who needed that at any time in history, audiences were just enraptured with these films. In fact, it was estimated in a New York Times article in 1916, just a year after she started, that nearly 182 million people had seen at least one Theta Bera film. The LA Times called her the champ vamp. In a cinema year that would be mostly remembered for the film Birth of a Nation, Theta starred in Carmen, directed by Raoul Walsh. Two different productions of the Carmen story released that year, one by Fox, which shot theirs on the East Coast, and the other by Cecil B. DeMille with Lasky Pictures out West. Lasky would merge into Paramount, if you remember, just a reminder. 
Rao told Fox he could beat the DeMille production into theaters. Two days after Theta was approached for the role, cameras were rolling on the film. Fox didn't beat Lasky into theaters, and both films opened on November 1st, 1915. Both were received well by critics, and the dueling Carmens became a national affair. It became the movie event of that year. Theta's Carmen was, by a narrow margin, considered the better of the two. Theta got a break from the vamp roles in the film Under Two Flags, during the production of which Theta got to ride horseback, which she'd found thrilling. Cigarette, her character, was also the hero of the story, dying in the end to save another. Theta got crazy good reviews for her work on this film, many noting how nice it was to see her not be a vamp for once. On that film, Theta met director J. Gordon Edwards, and the older man and Theta struck up a bond, a fatherly one, not one of the icky ones. And Edwards would end up directing the next 21 Theta Bear productions. They ended up forming the Theta Barrett unit at Fox. That's how Fox liked to do it at the time. They had like a director and star pairing, and those were the units. A big break from her status quo, kind of a surprising one, given how much William Fox wanted her to remain a vamp, was when Theta Barrett played, of all things, Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. It was her fourth non-vamp role in a row at Fox. Maybe William Fox was having a change of heart? Spoiler alert, he was not. As World War I raged in the summer of 1917, Theta was filming what would be considered her most iconic role, a role that is lost, save for about 20 seconds. The 1917 version of Cleopatra starring Theda Berra is one of the most sought-after lost films in film history, mostly due to its spectacular production value and acting. Theta was on full display in the film, both literally and figuratively. She wore 50 different costumes in the film, each skimpier than the last. The fabric for one costume, rumor has it, cost $1,000 per yard. The joke in the press was that she appeared to be wearing about 10 cents of it. Producers claimed that her costumes were this way in the name of historical accuracy. Cleopatra was the film that forced Theta, whom up until this point had managed to have all of her productions remain on the East Coast, to pack up for Hollywood. Most of the sets were being constructed on the new Hollywood Fox backlot. And when she arrived, Fox put her up in a big-ass mansion. During promotion of Cleopatra, Theta would tell the press stories of a quote-unquote past life she believed she had in ancient Egypt. Let's be honest, this was more than likely for the press. Unsurprisingly, the film was a smash hit. The film would play in theaters for two and a half years. The last noted screening of the film was in 1934, when Cecil B. DeMille screened it in preparation for his version of Cleopatra. Much of what is known of what the film looks like is due to the film preservationalists saving photos taken during the production and then lining them up to the original script and, of course, those precious 20 seconds that remain. As her star continued to rise, on November 18, 1917, Theta's entire family legally changed their name to Barra. In 1918, desperately wanting a vacation, the actress was making now a film about every seven weeks, most of them the vamp parts. But audiences were starting to get tired of Theta in this role. They'd already seen it at least two dozen times by this point, and we all know how much a studio will milk something, the critics were no longer as stoked on her either. Her popularity began to slowly slip. But you'd never know that looking at Fox. If you remember 
from all the way back in September of 2020 when we talked about the Big Five, you might recall that Fox had set up a tier system around this time for its films. There were the C pictures for testing out new talent, B films for those who had made it past the C films and were becoming moderately popular. Then, of course, A films were the big stars, aka the Theta Barra films at this time. So there was always the risk of a new actress taking the mantle from Theta Barra. Fox began trying to groom its next generation of stars using this system, and a lot of people were vying for Theta's position, but it was easier said than done to get one that A, was emotionally stable enough to handle it, B, that the audiences actually liked, and C, you know, because sexism, how easy, quote unquote, was she to work with? Turns out, very hard to get all three of those things, so for now, Theta Barra remained at the tippy top of the Fox pile. In a big move, Theta actually got to write the story for her next film, The Soul of Buddha. By all reports, this film, super weird. The film is about a dancer who enters the temple of Buddha and there falls in love with a man. The two marry, which angers the high priestess of the temple for some reason. The couple have a baby that is likely murdered by the priestess or her minions. And then the couple travel the globe in search of happiness. Yeah, I don't get it either. Um, then the couple each meets a separate tragic end on the same night. Also tragic was the reviews, but the public still liked it and loved her. In fact, when she volunteered to sell war bonds around this time, she nearly caused a riot when she said she'd donate $5,000 if 100 men would each buy a $50 war bond. The men rushed the stage. Another thing that started eating away at Theta's popularity, of course, was the Spanish flu, which like COVID did today, majorly affected the movie theaters. Up until that point, film rentals, which back then meant renting the prints from the studios to play in the movie theaters, had been rising incrementally each year, and thanks to the pandemic had flatlined them immediately. Not great for the young studios, whom had increasingly expensive talent on their rosters, and now no money coming in. At Fox, profits were cut in half in just one year. The company began re-releasing old films where movie theaters were open to get some quick cash. He also cranked out Theta Barra movies. Next was Salome, which is probably Theta's second most popular film, which is also lost and was pretty much made to capitalize on the Cleopatra popularity. It's the same thing. It's very opulent, very beautiful costumes, very epic in nature. The film actually got better reviews for Theta than Cleopatra had. At the end of 1918, Theta Barra was famous, stupid rich, but first and foremost to her, an actress. An actress that was growing tired of being typecast as a vamp. 1919 did start off with a bang, though, when the press incorrectly reported that she was dead twice. So that's fun. Now we're in the post-World War I phase, and audience tastes had shifted pretty drastically. People were more into the patriotic, wholesome stuff, which put a ding on Theta's box office numbers because she was always a vamp. For months, the press continuously speculated on whether or not Theta would remain at Fox as her contract was set to expire in May 1919. To keep her, Theta demanded Fox pay her $5,000 per week, which they refused since her films just weren't pulling in the money anymore. In response, Theta let her contract expire, sure someone else would take her. Her final film for Fox was The Lore of Ambition, which released in November 1919, Theta did not attend the premiere. 
Theta would claim years later that she let the contract at Fox expire simply because the girl wanted some vacation. She'd made 39 films in just 56 months. I feel like that's not an unreasonable request. A year after telling Theta that she was not worth what she used to be, Fox finished in the red for the first time. Despite the drama that led to her leaving, Theta had found love at Fox and married Charles Braben in 1921. The two had met at Fox, where he had begun working as a director. It was the first and only marriage for both of them. She was 35, but was saying she was younger. He was 37. Braben had started in the theater before entering film. Theta and her future husband made several films together at Fox, including Kathleen Malverine. Theta loved playing Kathleen as it was a non-vamp role, and while she got great reviews, Irish groups protested this Jewish girl playing an Irish heroine. Stink bombs were reportedly let off at several theaters as well. This was during Theta's kind of slow exit from the studio, and she was trying to prove she was still bankable to the other studios that might want her, and this little debacle had done her no favors. Theta left Hollywood in 1919, renting her house to Fatty Arbuckle. She and her sister vacationed in Europe while Theta pondered her next move. In 1920, Theta briefly returned to the stage, appearing on Broadway in The Blue Flame, which was basically a campy Frankenstein knockoff. Her popularity drew large crowds, and she was making more money than she'd been making in the pictures while the show was traveling before it had ended up at Broadway. When it had come to New York City, the play was just ravaged by critics. It was a financial success for Theta, but it was a professional disaster, too. Theta returned to Hollywood as Charles continued working for Fox and devoted herself to household duties. This was not a retirement, just a pause, she claimed. Rumors flew wildly as to whom would get Theta Berra under contract. At one point, she was going to star in a David O. Selznick film, and huge announcements had been made in the press that Selznick was going to usher Theta back into the limelight. Then, Selznick's father had a stroke, throwing the entire production into chaos when finances became strained. The film was never made. In the mid-1920s, Theta attempted two comebacks with the films Unchastened Woman for Goldwyn Pictures and Madame Mystery for director Hal Roach, but neither would relight the flame of her career. She also formed Theta Berra Productions at this time, but nothing ever came of that either. Her last film was 45 Minutes from Hollywood, which reused a shot from Madame Mystery. This was Theta Berra's last appearance in a film. She was 41 but was telling people she was 36. Theta Berra never appeared in a talkie. That doesn't mean she stopped acting. She attempted to make several more stage comebacks in the 30s and even wrote a book called What Women Never Tell, a memoir of her professional experiences, which to this day remains unpublished. The Braben Barras settled into a quiet life in Beverly Hills, occasionally showing up at public events, but never again in film. In 1936, Theta appeared in a radio play during a broadcast version of The Thin Man with William Powell and Myrna Loy. She was not there to act, though. She was there to announce her next big comeback, which never happened. Her name, however, would continue to describe new actresses on the scene. There were many next Theta Barras, but nobody seemed to have any use for the old one. In 1934, Theta appeared in a production of Belladonna at the Little Theater of Beverly Hills for Professionals. This was her last public performance. 
1949, a producer at Columbia expressed interest in making a movie on Theta's life, but like her attempts at a 1930s comeback, this never came to be. Offers still came in for Theta, but for one reason or another, they all fell through. The fact of the matter was, Theta Barra was an insanely rich woman. She'd been very smart with her finances. And by this point, she chose not to work unless she was passionate about something. A role like that just never came her way again. Theta spent her retirement entertaining dignitaries and other muckety-mucks of society. And if there became like an awkward moment or a lull in conversation, Theta would get up and often parody her time as the champ vamp. Most described her as highly intelligent with a wicked sense of humor. After appearing in 44 films, today, only six Theta Bear films, including What a Fool There Was, exist in their entirety. Most of Fox's silent films were destroyed in a 1937 fire at the Fox Sorge Vaults in New Jersey. Nitrate film is super duper flammable, so the building was just essentially just kindling. Most of what is known of Theta's acting prowess is preserved in stills, not in the actual works themselves. On April 7th, 1955, Theta Berra died of stomach cancer. She was 69, but of course, everyone thought she was 64. She was survived by her husband, mother, and sister Lori. She was interred as Theta Berra Braben at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale, California. While the majority of Theta Berra's work has been lost to the ages, the actress with the Hungry Eyes, as one spectator described her, is preserved in the hundreds of images that have survived. In them, you can see the love she had for her work, the fearlessness in which she portrayed characters, and her overall prowess as an actress. Even without much of her body of work, Vita Berra will always remain a force to be reckoned with on the silver screen. Well, all right, Irene, but here's something you haven't heard before. Something everyone listening in will hear for the first time on any radio program. Folks, I want you to meet Peter Barrett. Peter, I've been looking forward to meeting the number one vampire of all time. Thank you, Ken. According to the records, you vamped your way through 44 pictures and left a trail of broken men in each one of them. I guess that about makes you the wickedest woman of your time, does it? Well, I was no Shirley Temple. <laughs> I should say not. You were more of a dead-end kid with oomph. <laughs> yes, the oomph is sort of a... Well, it's a... It's a kind of, you know, you know what I mean. Oh. Well, I guess they didn't have that when I made pictures back in 1920 B.D. B.D.? Yes, before dishes. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the silent era's it girl, Clara Bow. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.